The reading is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Thank you very much, Susie, for, for reading for us. Well, uh, final straight. Um, here we are in the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. We, um, we began on the very first Sunday of uh, January, first Sunday of the year, 23 sermons to date and counting, um, 2,000 words covered so far, at least um, in this version, uh, just 200 uh, to go. Uh, but don't relax, uh, because... Uh, Jesus ends uh, with a bit of a bang. Um, let me lead us in a prayer before we turn and look at what he has to say. Uh, our Father God, um, thank you uh, for all of the riches of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, thank you for the chance we've had to, to read and think uh, and pray about uh, Christ's words. Uh, help us as we do that uh, this morning. Uh, we pray in his name. Amen. Some warnings um, are just faintly ridiculous, aren't they? Um, maybe you've seen some product warnings like this. Uh, on the, the children's buggy, remove child before folding. Uh, or on the, uh, on the petrol lawnmower, um, do not use naked flame to check fuel level. Um, or uh, how about well, this next one, uh, contents will be hot after heating. Uh, or, or the most famously of all, um, that microwave advice not to be used for drying pets. Um, sort of a slightly unpleasant idea, that, really. Um, some warnings are so ridiculous, so sort of apparently unnecessary, that we just walk past them. Uh, the warning that comes in these words of Jesus could not be more different. Um, and as we look at these words together, we find that they, they sit between choices, um, this, this final little section of the Sermon on the Mount, it sort of has at, at its two ends um, choice. So we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the, the two gates, the two roads, the two destinations. Next week we'll be looking at the two builders, the two houses, the two foundations and the two consequences. And at each of those sections Jesus is saying, look, it's either or, it's this or that. And then in between uh, those choice moments, uh, Jesus talks to us about threat. Uh, one is an external threat, we looked at that last week, and then this one is an internal threat. The, the external threat comes in the form of a false prophet, um, that the sheep in wolves' clothing, uh, a teacher of error capable uh, of causing terrible damage to the flock. And really unnerving to think of that. 
But if anything, the, the threat that we're looking at today is even more unsettling. Because this is an internal threat. This is a threat that comes from within. If you like, last week the warning was, look out, keep an eye out for those false teachers. Spot them and identify them and avoid them. But, but now the warning is, look out for you yourself could be leading yourself astray. And worst of all, you might not even know it. Uh, let's begin with, with the setting for, for the, <clears throat> pardon me, the setting for these words from Jesus, which you'll see concerns the day. Um, Jesus says in verse 22, when it, many will say to me, on that day. And the day Jesus is talking about is the day of judgment. It's identified all the way through. Uh, the Bible, Old Testament and New, this, this day of reckoning, a, a day when God will hold his creation to an account. Uh, we sang in that first song, didn't we, of a, this indescribable God, this God of the cosmos, this God who, who rules and names every star um, individually, such as his comprehensive, magnificent, uh, un, unimaginable scope. Uh, and the Bible tells us that a day will come when we will give him an account for our lives, for what we've done with um, the creatures that he's made us to be. But, but the really striking thing here is the way that Jesus identifies himself as the one at the very center of this day of judgment. Just look at the way that happens. Uh, first of all, he says that on the day of reckoning, it is me to whom you will have to speak. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me. It is Jesus to whom you and I will give an account for our lives on the last day. And then Jesus who will decide our fate. Verse 23, I will tell them plainly. Jesus delivers the words of judgment. And the punishment also concerns him. Do you notice that? Because to those who are found wanting, Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers. Kind of representing the way in which the very worst thing that could happen is to be dismissed from the presence of Christ. Nothing worse could ever happen to you or to me than to be sent away from the presence of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate loss. And, and the, the central problem concerns Jesus too. Because to those who, to whom he refuses entry, Jesus says, I never knew you. It is astonishing, isn't it? that a first-century carpenter, a man, should stand before a crowd and declare himself to be the one at the very centre, the arbiter of the day of judgment itself. I mean, you'd laugh at him, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd laugh at the, at the incredible self-centeredness of such statements. Except, of course, people didn't. And here we are, 2,000 years plus, studying his words. And with 
billions across the globe declaring themselves to have believed his words and followed him. If this morning you aren't sure what to make of the claims of Jesus Christ, if you're not sure quite, quite what you think of him, do understand that, as has often been said um, many times before, and rightly so, you can't be interested in Jesus. You can't find him intriguing. You, you can't like his teaching. You can't think, well, he's got some useful things to say. I, I appreciate his morality. I, I like his ethics. He doesn't leave us with that possibility. That the self-centeredness of these words mean that you, you can't say, I like the things that he says, because he's asking us, what do you make of me? How will you engage with me? Um, and to that end, understand that the words that we're about to look at, and as I've already begun to indicate to you, these are stern warning. Understand that they're not my words to you. And I'm very glad they're not. That they're his words to us. So, so the, the sense of, of threat the unnerving nature of these words, they are Christ's words to us. So let's look at them together. And we see immediately that the first thing that they describe is a shocking rejection about disciples who will not enter. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, many, many, not, not the odd rogue person, not a very rare, unusual occurrence, but many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just, just focus for a minute on the people that Jesus is talking about here. Um, they are people who declare themselves to be followers, aren't they? they? They speak to Jesus as their Lord. Uh, they acknowledge him. And, and they do so not in a kind of half-hearted way, but with passion, with enthusiasm, with real sense of commitment. That, that's the significance of the Lord, Lord. In, in this language, um, style, doubling like that intensifies. That's the way that the language works. Um, so to, to say, Lord, Lord, is to express real passion and commitment. You, you see it in uh, Jesus speaking to Martha in, in Luke chapter 10, when she's all upset about having had so much to do. And uh, Jesus tenderly rebukes her and says, Martha, Martha. And the doubling increases the intensification of, of his emotional engagement with her. You see the same in holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So these people say, Lord, Lord. Not just orthodox in belief, but passionate in their expression of it. There's nothing nominal about them. They're not just people who, who just sort of speak a few words and, and make the right noises. It's not just chat with them, because you see that they're also active in service. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? 
perform miracles in your name. Drag this into the modern moment. And these are professing Christian believers who have been baptized, who sing worship songs with great passion and enthusiasm, who've joined a small group, who serve on the church council, who lead on a summer camp. And yet, according to Jesus, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They've gone through life convinced that they are on the narrow way. Convinced that the destination at the end of their road was life. And only on the last day discover that it is not so. And, and, and everything in us at this point wants to say, no, no, surely not. We must be misreading this somehow. It can't be what Jesus meant, can it? But I've read it and read it and read it again, and I can't see another way of reading it. And it's not the only place that Jesus says it. You think of other parables where he picks up a similar idea, the parable of the sheep and the goats at the end of Matthew's gospel, where, where the goats, who are told that they saw Jesus naked and didn't clothe him, saw Jesus hungry and didn't feed him, and they say, when? When? They're bewildered. It's a surprise to them that they are found out, just as it is for these people here. Now, we're clear, aren't we, that mere words aren't sufficient. You know, it's not enough to be able to, uh, to understand the cross or to talk about justification by faith or to, to know a gospel outline or to, to, uh, to be able to rehearse five spiritual laws or whatever we do. No, no, words aren't enough. But for these people, it was more than words. They did ministry. And they did that ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not as though the ministry was misguided either. No, no, the things that are report, the things that they report having done are the very things that Jesus sends his disciples out to do at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, in a moment or two in the story. So, put all this together and it, it really becomes very unsettling, doesn't it? Because it, it tells us that there are people who are evangelical in their belief, faithful in prayer, passionate for Christ, committed in service, and who on the last day will not enter. And at least with the, the warning from last week, the, the false prophets, at least then Jesus said that by their fruit you will know them. You can see by the stuff that they do that they're not who they say they are. So they, they may have been able to mislead others, but you could spot them if you looked hard enough. But here we have people who are misleading even themselves. In other words, it's not as though on the last day these people that Jesus is, is speaking about here are going to say, ah, fair cop, Jesus. You know, we thought we might be able to smuggle our way in. Thought we might be able to fool you, but no, you've spotted, you've seen through us. No, fair cop. No, they're not saying that. They're saying, what do you mean? Didn't we do all these things? 
We were with you, weren't we? We served you, didn't we? No, they are astonished to discover that they are not received. You can imagine how awful it would be, wouldn't it, to, to arrive at a, at a wedding reception. Um, I, I was stood next to someone when this actually happened to them. They arrived at a wedding reception, looked at the seating plan, and their name was not on it. That's an embarrassing moment. But, but this is more intense than that. This is more like turning up at the wedding service, convinced that you're the best man, only for the groom to say, I don't know you, go away. It, it, it's that nonsensical. It, it's that incomprehensible. It's, it's that shocking. The wolves wore sheep's clothing. They pretended to be something that they weren't. These people aren't pretending. They're believing. Believing that they are on the narrow way. Believing that they are headed to life. And only on the last day do they finally learn of their error and discover that they have been on the broad road all along and didn't know it. I know how unsettling these words are. Uh, I feel it too. I felt it as I've been thinking of them this week. And, and at this point, in all sorts of ways, I'd, I'd love to pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, ah, but it's not actually quite like that. But I can't find a rabbit. I can't see a way of, of sort of undoing these words. Which means that they must they must be words that we consider seriously. Um, and as we wrap up, let's do that by putting three questions to ourselves, raising three issues with ourselves that, that I think what Jesus is saying here must press upon us. Now, here's the first question. The issue of obedience. Now, look again at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus zeroes in on the issue of lordship, on the question of who it is that we submit to. Being a Christian is, is so much more than about right beliefs. It's about right obedience. It's about having the right Lord. Um, no one becomes a Christian simply by believing a few truths in their head. You don't even become a Christian by having a, a really strong, powerful feeling about Jesus in your heart. Now, there's only one way to become a Christian, and that is by making a decision of the will. To decide to submit to him as your Lord, to install him as the king and ruler of your life, and to say, I'll live for you. I give my life to you. My life is yours now. So an obvious question to ask would be, have we done 23 sermons, 2,000 words? The Sermon on the Mount is full of commands. How have we done how much obedience has there been? Are we clear, for example, that, that obedience means doing what God, what Jesus says to us, whether or not it makes sense? 
There's a moment in the Old Testament narrative, maybe if you're familiar with it, you'll remember, when um, King Saul uh, goes into battle with Amalekites. And, and the instruction that he's given through the prophet Samuel is, is to destroy all of their livestock and cattle and sheep and so on. But that doesn't make sense to Saul. So he hangs on to them. And then there's that terrible moment of confrontation when the prophet Samuel comes to him and hears the bleating of the sheep and says, what have you done? And Saul explains to him that, that he had in mind to, to use the animals in sacrificial worship because he felt sure that that would be pleasing to the Lord. And in a chilling reply, Samuel says this, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, it, it wasn't your job, Saul, to work out what you thought God might or might not want, or, or whether what he wanted was or wasn't a, a wise and sensible and reasonable thing to do. It was your job to obey. You'd heard his command. Because in the end, Saul, it wasn't about the animals. God, God never wanted the animals. No, God wanted you, all of you. God wanted your complete surrender to him, your acknowledgement that he is your Lord. So how do we fare on the issue of obedience? And then secondly, a second question, how do we fare on the issue of repentance? A second test we could take is, how do we respond when people correct us, when people point out error? Are we indignant and defensive? Do we become all self-confident and self-righteous? Or do we respond willingly, humbly, grateful to have some of our failings brought out? Because actually that just fits with who we are. We're constantly on the lookout for ways that we aren't being and doing all that God would want us to be and to do. One of the marks of the narrow way is that it is narrow, which means that those on it will constantly be making course corrections to stay on it. So are we? How do we respond when others bring words of correction and identify our errors? The third question um, concerns the issue of grace. As you press on uh, down this road uh, towards uh, the destination at the end of it, what, what words, if you like, are you learning to say? As you travel further down the road, what is your speech to the Lord becoming more like? Is it becoming more like Pharisee or more like tax collector. You, you remember the parable. Are you increasingly tending to gaze up to heaven and saying, Lord, I thank you for all of the excellent things that I'm managing to do as 
part of the church family at Christ Church. Thank you for the Bible studies that I'm a part of. Thank you for the prayer meetings that I attend. Thank you for the church services where I'm able to, to, to contribute. Thank you for the opportunities for witnessing that I have. Thank you for all of the evidences of my faithful discipleship. Because that's the error these people made. Confident because of what they had done. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Look at what we did, Lord. How different the tax collector who wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm not what I should be, Lord, and I need your help and your forgiveness. As, as we finish now um, and come to a final song, I, I feel the, the weight of... I feel how easily some could be feeling this morning, look, you've, you've really unsettled me. Actually, you're, you're undermining my assurance. You know, 20 minutes ago, I was sort of, you know, confident as a Christian disciple, and now you've left me all kind of slightly unnerved and asking myself all sorts of questions. That can't be right. can't be right for you to, 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 to rattle us like that. These are Jesus' words, not mine. These are his challenge to us, not mine. And I think what Jesus is telling us is that he wants us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in him. And if I were to offer my hope for preaching a sermon like this, I would rather that we were unnerved but on the narrow road than the, we were assured and confident but on the broad one and not realise it. Um, let me lead us in a prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we, uh, we thank you for all the riches of your word to us in this Sermon on the Mount. And as we come, come to the end of it and, and come to such challenging words as these, uh, we ask that you'd give us grace to hear them. Uh, and Father, where, um, where we are unsettled and don't need to be, uh, would, we, would this final song uh, assure us that, that, that in you um, our hope is found? And in you, we can have a sure and certain hope. But Father God, if, uh, if it is that we need to be unnerved and unsettled, uh, because we're not as we should be uh, before you and in relationship with you, uh, then uh, please, by your Spirit, uh, show us that. And we ask you in Christ's name. Amen.